we know that if you have opportunities to keep moving as part of what it is that you're doing, that this will also keep the brain active and um, more alert for learning. Not only for the learners, that they are actually active in their learning, but physically active. They're at a standing table, they're on a high stool, now they're on the floor. That's all physical. And because it is physical, it's keeping the brain going. Kia ora from New Zealand and welcome to another episode in our latest podcast series, The Future of Schools, Schools of the Future. <laughs> Where we share insights and learnings from education experts and school leaders on how they're innovating, adapting and leading the way around the world during the pandemic and beyond. A couple of weeks, it's all happening still, the world is moving, it's it changing. Is. So the schools are going back around the world, you know, over in the Middle East and Asia and uh, America, so I've been seeing lots of um, amazing posts from teachers um, doing incredibly creative things to kind of welcome their kids back to the class so they're not frightened around social distancing. So I've seen, you know, um, desks made into Jeeps, which is really amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, um, big boxes made into private reading bins. Um, where else have I seen? Oh, I've seen some amazing little groups of tables and they've put um, sun umbrellas over the top and tried to make a tropical thing. So teachers are just doing a phenomenal job. Yeah, creativity, um, passion. And make Making it fun, like Making it, it, it's different, but it doesn't have to be scary, and I yeah, just think yeah. it's been amazing. So, but hey, sad news to Ken Robinson. I remember when I started at Fernware, mm. and you told me to watch his TED talk on creativity. Mm. So influential, oh. um, so you know, he's left uh, a legacy. I he think. has, mm. and I just think he was just such an amazing man, and so passionate, and. Um, as you said, influential, but also just inspiring. Like, mm. he, he embodies the word inspiring, I think. And even as a, you know, for somebody who works within education, he was inspiring. But as a parent, he was mm. utterly inspiring. It made me rethink how my kids are learning at school. So Yeah, it just makes sense. I it? know. So, you know, that's very sad news. Right. So this week's special podcast guest is former school principal turned education consultant, Sandra Jenkins. So, Kelly, tell us tell us a bit about the interview. So I caught up with um, Sandra at the actually at the end of last year so she was finishing up at Freeman's Bay Primary School in Auckland which is this amazing kind of future focused award winning schools it's run uh, architecture awards all around the world and Sandra's always hosting where she was when she was there hosting overseas educators to come and see this amazing school you know we just wanted to share what she told us about her school and also what it takes to design in a school and, and how to work with architects and get the best out of your building and where she got her inspiration from. She so now people world. can't necessarily go and visit the school, they can listen to the podcast They can, and, and we also link did... to the pictures. And we link to the pictures, exactly. So we hope you enjoy this. I have actually been involved in education since um, 1969, was when I went to training college. And while I was there, I met a guy, his name was John Woods. And he was the founding principal of a progressive school in the UK called Beatles. And there's another progressive school that's really famous that a lot of people around the world know called Summerhill. And he and A.S. Neal, who became the principal of Summerhill, they used to sit together in the mess room at the, uh, during the war and talk about what what they believed in, in terms of education. And he would talk about what we would call 
It was known then as progressive education, but it's what we would call personalising learning. Uh, and developing a curriculum that was very much focused around the interests of individual uh, students and for them to be able to pursue that interest, for them to be empowered in their learning, for uh, uh, that they are the ones that are in the driver's seat, that it's following their interests and their passions and their, um, you know, their journey, if you like. So that education is not in the way that John Dewey talked about, back in the day where the teacher was a jug pouring pearls of wisdom into little rows of mugs. It was a lot more creative. And um, so it sparked a passion in me. I was 16 and I thought, wow, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to develop your own school like that in New Zealand I, within a government schooling system and imagine the opportunity that you could have if you were able to build your own school and design your own school around the, the pedagogy and the philosophy that you believe in. And then who would have believed it that years later in the 2000s that I would have an opportunity to uh, be involved in demolishing a school and totally rebuilding it. So your question was, how, how long have I been here? I have been here for 12 years, and that is what I've been able to do. I've been able to actually um, uh, um, fulfil that dream and passion that this special guy mm -hmm. was um, able to um, instill in me when, when, when I was a student. And who would have thought that going into a teaching career as a teacher that I would have the opportunities that I've had? And, and of course that's come with the support of um, you know, many people along the way. So, so that personalised learning opportunities mm, for children, that was a big focus of yes. your fellowship. Yeah, team, yeah. It? and it's always been a big focus of yeah. the education that I have provided both as a teacher and as a school principal in the various um, roles that I've had in education. So what happened in 2014, I was awarded the APPA Travel Fellowship. When I was planning what I was going to do, I jumped on Twitter. Made contact with people who were already out there doing amazing stuff in learning environments and linking future-focused pedagogy, linking um, personalising learning with space. I jumped on the net and looked at who was really working mm. in, in an interesting way with mm. um, with design and of course there was Stephen um, Heppel and his daughter and they, his daughter was teaching um, down in Portsmouth in UK and they had uh, um, so there was that work that was going on. Uh, there was the Chair of Learning Environments in UK, Terry White, and Lenny Longy in Scandinavia. So what I did was I made contact with all of those people in the first instance, and they were very, very hospitable and took me through the builds and everything that they were working on, and we had lots of conversations and all the rest of it. And they, so from that I was exposed to a lot of design elements that hadn't been seen in New Zealand. I went to six countries 
Um, and I'd also had visited in Australasia and Asia as well. So what? Um, so it was really really interesting because what happens in the in in UK and in Scandinavia is that the first consult that is appointed to the project team, like a year even out before there is any, um, you know, any marks on paper, is that they are working around the pedagogy um, with the with the school community and thinking about what sort of pedagogy does you know do these schools want or these learning institutions because some of them were universities and art schools and things like that and then the arc the project manager um, for the build is appointed as contracted but that first consultant is there right at the beginning developing the vision for learning and then that is uh, very, very much the driver in terms of what the um, the design elements are, and then uh, is always kind of like that. That consultant is advocating for those um, de design elements related to the pedagogy, and then once the build is there, that person is also supporting the staff to work with those spaces and um, working with the children and the school staff and making that vision around the pedagogy live and then you know one year two years later tests coming back and evaluating and testing so it's a really interesting process that they um, go through and then in terms of the design elements, I saw things that I hadn't seen in New Zealand primary schools, not in the public system anyway. For example, internal stairwells that flare out on the bottom so that you've got a great kind of like mountaintop come assembly area, as well as it being a travel space, as well as it being a place where um, students can choose to work. Uh, things like lots of little nooks and crannies, uh, water play, opportunities for movement. This is an area that hasn't really been thought about in terms of design in New Zealand. Linking to activity-based working, that we know that if you have opportunities to keep moving as part of what it is that you're doing, that this will also keep the brain active and um, more alert for learning. And same with same not only for the learners that they are actually active in their learning, but physically active because you know they might change spaces, they go for a walk up the stairs, come down on the slide or whatever. They're at a standing table, they're on a high stool, now they're on the floor. That's all physical. And because it is physical, it's keeping the brain going. Um, and the staff also, because the teachers, because they're moving around a lot more, there's no teacher station where they're static, that that also um, keeps them active as well. And I was very interested in designing um, in, in exploring the links between uh, what was happening in schools in terms of the way that the curriculum was being delivered in a future-focused way. And I was thinking about the environments that our learners were going to go into in the 2030s, the study environments and also the work environments. And in terms of what that might look like in the 2030s, we have a glimpse of that when we look at modern workplaces. And many, many of them have those drivers around 
uh, collaboration, building high-performing teams, choice in terms of where you're going to be working. You could be having stand-up meetings, you could be having small meetings in small rooms, going into um, the sorts of spaces where you choose to work and study, or working collaboratively, or in a relaxed environment like a cafe-style one. So you kind of think about that in terms of the drivers. Uh, what are the drivers around that, and what's coming out of the research around future work environments and the skills and attributes that people need. So it's a kind of like a mash of that plus the wanting it to be an exciting place for, uh, for the learners. And along the way with thinking about that, I started wondering around the relationship between workplaces and school environments. And I don't think, I've not ever come across any research around that, but you kind of, you know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work it out because, you know, like I started school, my schooling was in the 1950s when I was at primary school. And when I was at secondary school, I was in the 1960s. And you think about what the schools looked like then. Okay, so they had, you know, little wooden desks or benches and the teacher at the front of the room with a blackboard. And then it became the overhead projector at high school, you know, great technology. And I was thinking about that. I thought about one of my first jobs as a high school student. I was the tea lady at Rothmans in Napier. And it was my job to take the trolley into the typist pool room and into the boss's offices. And those, the typist pool room had the head typist, the head administrator, up the front of the um, typing pool like a teacher was. And then there was all these, um, you know, desks and benches and rows, you know, and when the girls had finished their typing, off they would go and put it up in the, um, or they'd put their hands up and the lady would come and pick it up and she'd put it in her trays and what have you. But what those environments looked like in the workplaces and what the schools looked like were the same. So I think that we're at a tipping point in the 21st century. So there were specific design elements or key principles that I wanted to bring into the design. And I was very lucky that with the team that I had from um, the Ministry of Education, plus the architects being RTA Studios, and um, the school board at the time were, were prepared to take some risks to push the edge of the envelope and to um, be innovative in the design. So it wasn't, yes, there's a lot of design elements that I really advocated for and um, lobbied to make sure that we would have them, but I had the, there was good educational reasons for doing the things that we wanted to do that linked with our pedagogy and our philosophy but to to achieve it there had to be the will from you know a great team and I was just so lucky to have that. So you talked about that sort of consultation with the school community how broadly did you consult with the school community the students the community in general in the earlier stages of the project? What I felt was that in terms of consultation, unless the consultation was at a high level, 
If you drilled down to the sorts of spaces that people wanted, my fear was that you would get what you always got because um, people hadn't experienced, hadn't had the privilege of experience what I had experienced. And so uh, with the consultation, I kept it very much at a high level around the let's think about future-focused workspaces, let's think about future-focused study places, let's think about um, what's coming out in the OECD um, papers on, on the future of work and the attributes that are needed in the 21st century and beyond. And I really wanted to, to push that idea of the design and the architecture being the third teacher, um, the design itself would be provocative and that it would ensure that the, the type of pedagogy that was going to be created in the spaces um, wasn't going to be related to the 1950s and the 1960s. I had a real driver, I guess, for it to be future-focused and to make those links and for it to, as far as the students were concerned, as far as the learners were concerned, that it would be engaging, that it would be empowering, that it would be enriching. And my fear was that if you really drill down into consultation being around, you know, what do you want in the space, that we would get what we've always got and that people would take a safe road. And I didn't, want it, I didn't want the road to be safe. I wanted it to be an opportunity for innovation. And also very much in terms of around the universal design for learning uh, philosophy where you kind of like take a learner and think about, walk them through the um, imaginary spaces and what are the what are the design elements that are going to make it absolutely fantastic for that learner or for that group of learner, learners, and particularly for our most at-risk learners. You know, as a nation, we know we've got our tail. We know that our Māori and our Pacifica students are overrepresented in health and jail and unemployment and all of that. And so we have an absolute professional responsibility to uh, provide the best bang for buck for our most at risk and our most dis disengaged learners. So in terms of thinking about it from a universal design for learning point of view, and yes, this, these are very deep and rich conversations that we'd have, you know, thinking about um, the profile of a learner and what we want their day to look like so that they are engaged and motivated to um, to be at school and really wanting to be here. So at that level, yes. Oh, well, that was great. <laughs> Loads of helpful takeouts and considerations for anyone who's thinking about a school refurbishment or redesign or, or starting from scratch. So um, that's awesome. And there's more to come, isn't there? Yes. So next week, we'll kind of delve a little bit more into how the teachers and, and kids are navigating their spaces and also linking pedagogy and design before you even put pen to paper with an architect. So this is really, really helpful advice for our school leaders who are doing new schools.
school builds and things like that. The architects have to have a great understanding around what it is that the, the vision of the school is around learning and uh, then they've got to be able to unpack those ideas. People like myself, you know, like we're not architects. You know, with teachers, we always want to drill down into the detail, <laughs> you know, get the pencil out and draw it ourselves, but actually that's not our job. So, thanks for listening. Remember to get in touch if you'd like to be a guest on the Fernware Learning Lab and pass on the pod, share this podcast with your networks. Yes, please do. And until next time, take care. Ka kite anō, cheerio, goodbye from New Zealand.